Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the FOMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. With me today is Kevin Curler of the American University of Cairo. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've been involved uh, with this uh, with uh, this emerging research program about uh, the role of militaries in Arab politics. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work on it and the broader changes in the way political scientists have been studying Arab militaries. Right. So my work on the military basically has two different uh, aspects. One is kind of the classical question of uh, military behavior in the Arab Spring. Um, and I've been working on this a bit. Um, what brought me to still study this, I mean, there's quite a lot uh, on this already, but I'm, I'm kind of unsatisfied with uh, some of this because I think, well, one of the main reasons that why I'm not uh, really happy with the, with the existing state of the art, let's say, is that there is a, a tendency to look at military behavior or the drivers of military behavior from a very military-centric perspective, right? So um, there is uh, a lot of talk about different organizational structures of the military. There's a lot of talk about uh, coup proving and these kind of things. There's very little on, uh, let, very little understanding and very little attention to the political role of militaries. Militaries as political institutions, right? Uh, and this is something that I think should be emphasized more, especially when you look at coup-proving arguments and these kind of things, because different uh, political roles uh, of militaries uh, have different implications for the applicability of, of, of different coup-proving strategies. So, that's well, so what, what do you mean exactly, the political role? Do you mean in terms of advancing their own self-interest, or right. do you mean ideology, or the political aspirations of specific generals? I mean, what, what exactly do you mean by it, this the political It's probably the, the first thing. So advancing their corporate interests, which might be political interests, right? So, you know, if you look at a, a military like the Egyptian military and compare, compare it to something like the Tunisian military, obviously these are two very different institutions, right? From an organizational perspective, yes, uh, but also in terms of their understanding of their political role, which means that you know, the same coup-proving strategy applied to the Egyptian, Egyptian military will not have the same effects as applied to the Tunisian military. So that's kind of the, the fundamental idea. And I think this really goes back to the fact that uh, the Egyptian military and other Arab militaries see themselves as political institutions and have a history as a, as a political institution in the, in the political context of their countries, which is not true to the same extent for, you know, the Tunisian military, for example. And this is one central point that I think has not been uh, you know, looked at enough in, in this literature, focusing on very you know, short-term strategic forms of coup proving of you know, how, where do you put which kind of general and these kind of things. So this is kind of a more longer, longer-term perspective that, that I want to, want to adopt. Do you see more of, uh, in terms of this sense of a political role, I mean, one way that that could that that could work out is they want to protect their budgets, they want to protect their autonomy, they want to keep the uh, the titular head of state from interfering in promotion decisions, right? right? That that's one kind of thing. And then there's kind of the old Turkish model, right? You know, where they are the guardians of the nation, the guardians of the state, acting as a check on uh, on, on on the leader. Um, which of those roles do you think is more common in uh, in the Arab military? Uh, it you know Arab military environment. Right, I, I'm, you know, I think the Turkish model, kind of the behind the scenes, right, uh, ruling but not not governing type of idea, was of course the dominant one. I'm not sure if you know the Egyptian experience seems to suggest that this did not really work out uh, in 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 the specific uh, specific case. So it seems to me that 
you know, they kind of, uh, you know, without actually wanting to come back to the scene, they actually did. And they, you know, one of the lessons they seem to have drawn from the experience, the early experience of the transitional period is that, well, they have to do it themselves, kind of, right? Uh, and they're trying to do this at the moment. I don't think it is working out very well if you look at the way in which uh, the CC regime is trying to consolidate, but it's not, uh, it's just not happening, right? I mean, look at the way in which CC tries to institutionalize support uh, in, in party political terms and how this is really characterized by infighting between different political groups that are then supported by different parts of the security sector and so on. So it seems to me that there is, in the Egyptian case especially, a you know, a stronger involvement in direct governing, obviously, which does not seem to work out very well in terms of the cohesion of this this group that, uh, you know, initially supported the return of the military in the security, in the broader security sector, not mm -hmm. only the military institution itself, but especially also uh, intelligence uh, services and so on. Well, you know, one of the reasons that uh, traditionally uh, the militaries haven't been studied very much by uh, political scientists. I mean, there's many reasons, right. but one is simply that it's very difficult to get access and it's difficult to research. Right. And so it's created some something of a black box, right. uh, not just the army, but the security services and the Mukhabarat and, and all of those agencies. We know that they employ huge numbers of people right. and play this major political role, but they're very difficult to study. So has that changed over the last uh, five years since the Arab uprisings? Have you, have you and your colleagues encountered new opportunities uh, to study, to get information, to get access? Well, this really depends on which military you're talking about, right? Uh, in the Egyptian case, again, there, used, there was a period in which it was more possible, even, I mean, it was never easy, After right? 2011. After 2011, uh, and this has obviously changed very much, right? So at the moment... Uh, it is extremely difficult to get uh, you know, access to anybody and to talk to anybody. And this even extends beyond you know, the security kind of sphere in Egypt at the moment because there is this, this atmosphere of, of you know, uh, suspicion, let's say. Um, I think it's different for uh, Tunisia, for example, where you can actually you can go, you can talk to people. There's uh, lots of things coming out about the role of the military under the Bin Ali regime that you know, would have been hidden uh, before, uh, you know, how the regime actually interfered in the military, the, this uh, whole Barakat Asaf uh, affair and its, its aftermath. Um, so I would say for the Tunisian case, you know, there is more access, it's easier to study, and there are some very interesting things coming to light that uh, you know, were not accessible before. Similar things could be said, though of course in a very different way about Syria, right, because you have uh, you know, part of what uh, what we've been doing as well is you know talking to deserters, obviously from the from the um, Syrian military, and also this kind of gives you new access that you otherwise might not have had before. You know, emphasizing different questions, of course, because you will not get at this you know more general level of looking at the military as an institution so much, but more at you know individual processes of of. Um, desertion and loyalty decisions, basically. But still, it's a different type of access that you, you know, couldn't have had before uh, 2011 or you know, 2012 in the Syrian case. So, so I've been following uh, the, the work you've been doing for a couple of years now on uh, the Syrian military and you know, these rolling uh, 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 interviews that you've been doing with right. defected uh, Syrian military 
uh, personnel. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. You know, kind of how how did you go about uh, you know finding these defectors? And what do you what did you what do you, and what are they telling you? Right. What are you learning from talking with uh, with these uh, defected military? So first of all, this is something that is a kind of a collaborative project. So there is uh, .all uh, is involved, uh, Church W. Um, and there is um, uh, Holger Albrecht also at the American University in Cairo. Uh, so what we've been doing is basically uh, we divided uh, the neighboring countries. I went to the Turkish-Syrian uh, border. And how did we find uh, the searches? Well, back then, uh, this used to be relatively easy. I'm not sure if it would still be that easy in, in this particular area. But I basically just went to Hatay and uh, you know talked to the first Syrian I met in a in a coffee place and, uh, you know, asked uh, about, um, you know, his friends and so on. And then, you know, you take it from there, from there. So it's kind of a snowball principle, obviously, which has some issues then in methodological terms because you get into specific networks. Um, uh, and so what we tried to do then in, an, in later uh, iterations of the whole process was to use different entry points mm -hmm. so that we tap into different networks of of military deserters. And so what did you learn about the organization and the culture of the Syrian military by talking to these people? I think one of the main um, conclusions that came out of this, if you want to call it a conclusion, is that um, the level of control and, uh, and uh, kind of supervision within, within the military, even in the context of the, of the ongoing civil war, is uh, is extra is extraordinary, right? There's a lot of control. There's a lot of um, relative to other militaries. Relative to other militaries, and uh, also relative to what you know, common sense explanations would suggest about what drives uh, desertion and loyalty in the Syrian military. So it's at least that's our impression. It's much less about identity factors, uh, sectarian factors, but it's much more about mistrust, the lack of trust, not only between different sectarian, sectarian groups, which is what you would expect, but also among co-sectarians. In you know, even in small military units, people did not talk to their uh, to their comrades on the same hierarchical level because they did not know who to trust. And this is something, as I said, that extends far beyond you know, uh, mistrust between different sectarian groups. So, and one of your big research questions has been why and when these officers or these personnel defected. Right. So why did they? So, uh, of course, the why question is tricky uh, because, uh, you know, in methodological terms, our problem is that we're kind of sampling an independent variable here. So we're only looking at deserters. So it is very difficult to say, you know, to answer the causal question. But what we've been doing is to look at triggers of, of desertion. So basically exploiting the fact that, you know, before you desert, you're kind of loyal, right? Um, so we can't really say, you know, this profile of soldier will then desert, but we can say what are, if, what are events that trigger desertion. And one of the conclusions, preliminary conclusions so far, is that it seems to be factors related to fear and personal risk that are really the best explanatory factors for triggering desertion, rather than things like you know, moral grievances or these kind of things. So it's really people uh, you know, have this kind of risk assessment uh, and base their decision um, on this risk assessment. Now, what's interesting is that you would, you would expect in interviewing people that they would want to give a heroic narrative. Right. I saw a family being butchered. I couldn't take right. it anymore, so I left. Right. But what you're saying is that you were actually hearing stories about personal risk or personal fear. So this is not necessarily, of course, you're right about the narratives you get. 
Um, so the what I was just uh, saying about risk as a as an important factor is not only based on narratives, right? So what we did is we looked at uh, places and times where people deserted, and we looked at casualty figures. Uh, to see if there is a relationship between regime casualties and desertion, between opposition casualties and desertion, between conflict int intensity in general and desertion. And you find this relationship, especially with um, uh, you know, regime casualties that, drive, that seem to drive desertions. So that's, that's one kind of way in which you can look at this. And then, of course, uh, especially in the qualitative interviews, you also get... Of course, nobody would ever say, you know, I was afraid, so I ran away. Obviously, no. Uh, this is not the kind of narrative you get. But then if you look at how people, uh, you know, what people did after desertion, did they actually go to fight or did they, uh, you know, leave the country immediately? Did they kind of uh, go to places where there was a lot of fighting? Did they go to places where it was relatively peaceful? And these kind of, So you can try to tease out some kind of trajectories of desertion. Yeah, I remember we, we were talking before about defection versus desertion. Right. So, yeah, just like getting off, leaving the country and going off to Europe is very different from right. joining, taking your gun and right. joining right. Free Syrian Army. Right. And, I mean, among our uh, respondents, about half of them uh, deserted in the sense that they did not uh, pick up, you know, they did not fight uh, against the regime. At least they had not the intention to do so. I mean, some of them were actually, or that's the story we get, they were actually forced uh, in a way to uh, to fight because just, you know, for the logistics of moving out of the country, which meant they had to join opposition forces and so on. Um, but, uh, well, it's about half-half in terms of was fighting the regime a motivation uh, for them to actually leave the military? So, you know, looking ahead, you, you, there is this critical mass now of, of young scholars who are looking at these Arab militaries, and, and you've expressed you know, certain dissatisfaction with, the, with the, the literature. So what do you think are the big unanswered questions or the emerging research paradigms that, uh, that, that you think this group of young scholars is going to be focusing on in the next couple of years? So one of the things uh, which I'm still intrigued by is the whole question of of loyalty and desertion of individual military personnel. There's just not a lot of research, not only on Arab militaries, but on militaries in general. Well, it's not until uh, Dorothy Ohl's uh, book comes out. Exactly. Uh, we're waiting for that, obviously. And there's also a quite interesting uh, archive uh, using, so Rand in the, in the 60s did these interviews with Viet Cong uh, deserters or defectors, whatever you want to call them. Uh, so there's interesting uh, comparative uh, potential which could be exploited because the stuff is there, right? So there's individual level data. It's individual level data on, exactly, on, on individual military mm -hmm. personnel. I think that's really something that is very interesting. And what I would like to see, and I'm not quite uh, sure myself of how to pull this off, but how can we kind of extrapolate from this to the larger institutional picture of the military as an organization, right? If we know enough about what drives desertion in different military organizations, how can we draw conclusions from this about the military as an organization? Do, do you think that Arab militaries today are fundamentally different creatures from what they were five years ago? Or is this just a mild adaptation to new, new challenges? I would say it's the latter. It's probably a, an adaptation you know, with, of course, you know, the Syrian military and the Libyan military are probably exceptions there, right? Because of the circumstances, but um, I don't see a, a very fundamental change in terms of how they perceive of their, of their political role. Right? Okay, well, thanks, uh, Kevin Curler of the American University of Cairo. Uh, thanks for joining the Pomex podcast. Thank you very much.